Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. And the change of bureaucracy means the, the community has to repeat itself yet again. And also in, the community has to invest in the education of these policy people and these politicians. And so we do it again, but then comes another election cycle and then comes another manager and you have to do it again. So it's certainly one step forward, almost two steps back, not the other way around. And that's why I think the voice is something that is going to be permanent. We hopefully will have to repeat ourselves less and we can actually get real momentum. And that's why I thought the voice in its permanency was is going to be a good thing. A new book on an Indigenous voice to Parliament and cultural safety for First Nations people in the workplace. You need to look for a workplace that you can see is actively supporting Indigenous things and people. And you you ask them the questions when you go to an interview or you look on the website or whatever and say, what are you doing? What support mechanisms and networks and blah, blah, do you have in place? You know, because... Aboriginal employment is in demand and employers are looking for great people. So don't think you have to stay in a job where or in a place that is not going to support you. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Ongoing debate around an Indigenous voice to Parliament continues to divide both Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. And as we get closer to a referendum, those for and against the proposal continue to put their cases forward. Most would see the need for an in-depth discussion on the issue, but as conversations intensify, how much weight should be placed on the cultural safety of First Nations people in the workplace? And how can we ease the cultural load of First Nations employees during what is a challenging period with many feeling conflicted, confused or disillusioned with the referendum process? More on that later in the program. But first, Charles Prowse is a Ninkana man from the Kimberley in Western Australia. Having spent more than 30 years working in Indigenous affairs, he's often been asked how best to improve the outcomes for Indigenous people. More recently, though, it's been the prospect of an Indigenous voice to Parliament, which has been the focus of intense scrutiny. A supporter of the proposal, he's decided to write a book on the significance of a yes vote and why he believes it to be important. Charles Prowse, welcome to Speaking Out. And before we get into the book you've written, let's talk a little bit about you. Can you tell us where you grew up and what your influences were? Well, I'm from Derby in the Kimberley in Western Australia. People may or may not know the nearest town is 220 kilometres away, Broome on Yaru country, and Fitzroy Crossing is 270 kilometres away on Bunaba country. And for a, a long time, that's all I knew. As we just got out, went to Broome and occasionally Fitzroy Crossing. You know, so the first 16 years of my life was in Derby, a town of 3,000. I come from a, like many First Nations people, a very large family with a very large extended family. and. I think half of Derby was almost half as Aboriginal and probably related to nearly all of them. So, <laughs> <laughs> and and Derby's a as an outdoorsy town, a fishing town. It's muddy waters with mangroves, and the mighty Fitzroy River is, is our major river, the Mudawara. So that's all I knew for a long time. And my family is quite, I think, strong. My mum often says, you know, one half of the town married the other half of the town, the Archies and the Dantwans. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got three brothers and one sister and lots of 
nephews and nieces and quite a few grannies in the process as well. Obviously, coming from that background, though, you know, you've come on to do some really extraordinary things that would not have been obvious at the time you were growing up, thinking about you actually going and studying at Harvard, for example. What was it that helped you think bigger, look beyond the world that you were and have those kind of aspirations and think, yeah, you know, I can do that? Well, I didn't really at the start. (laughs) Don't tell me it just happened by luck. (laughs) Well, I don't know. There's a little bit of that. But to be honest, I'm a nerd. I'm a book nerd. Well, specifically, I'm a comic nerd. And I think really that started my education journey. And that's also why I had to unfortunately leave Derby because year year 11 and 12 was by correspondence at the time. So mum and dad saw the fact that I I needed to continue with my education and, and off I went to Perth. And one thing led to another and then I was at UWA and, you know, when you're a black fellow, not many Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people still were graduating university at the time. So you're not pushed but you are engaged in these roles and I, I never resisted from being a cadet in, in a government agency in Aboriginal affairs and I remain in Aboriginal affairs. I've never resisted because, you know, I just that's my world and that's what my parents and my grandparents did and I just followed that path. and. I was very keen to. So it is a little bit of luck, but, you know, I think I was brought up with a set of values in a, in a community where it is my world and I did want to make a difference. And, and I think one thing does lead to another. You take the opportunities, you work hard and things keep presenting themselves. And I just kind of feel, well, why not? Why not? Because there's lots of good things to do. And selfishly in the process, you do get to see the world. And I deliberately chose my career or rather the jobs to see Australia. And then, you know, it led to seeing a little bit more of the world. So I just think my education, probably my love of comics really was a kickstart. Well, reading's a great start. I started with comics as well, actually. So I think that that love of reading does really translate, which brings us very nicely to the fact that you have written this book. But I was just wondering if you could talk to us a little bit, Charles, about why it was that you felt that you wanted to write a book as part of your contribution to this important national debate? Well, I wanted to contribute. That's the main thing. And I suppose, again, my career has led me to stay on this path and contribute generally. But the book almost kind of fell into my lap, to be honest. Hasha contacted me through a a friend, Ben Bowen of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, and they were looking for someone to write a book. And I, I said yes, but I probably didn't really know what I was getting myself in for. And next minute, I'm writing a 10,000 word essay. And I was a bit freaked out at the start, to be honest. But then I just thought, well, I do have something to say. This Again, this opportunity has landed in my lap. So you've got to take the bull by the horns. And the issue is so important. I felt I couldn't say no. And so that's how I ended up doing the book. It is a very personal reflection on the importance to you of a a voice to parliament. What are some of the key messages that you felt were really important to get across in terms of that very strong personal feeling that you do have about this issue? Well, I think it probably, well, it does. It goes back to the very start of who I am and where I've come from, from Derby and my big family and the population in Kimberley is, is half Aboriginal. So I wanted to bring that perspective in particular. And then, of course, I've got my career where I've seen been around Australia and been overseas and, and done corporate and non-profit and government. So 
I suppose an opportunity to bring all of that together, but really grounded in the sense that I'm a community person from regional remote Australia and I've got a big family and it affects us. It affects my family. It affects me. It affects our history. And we are just but one family of many Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander families across Australia. So if I could put that in a book and write about it and for you know, Australians to see it and see a perspective from a, a community perspective. You know, my mum's in the book, my friend Jason's in the book that you know. And so I wanted to put a, a First Nations community lens in a modern world and it's that two worlds, you know, the Indigenous world and the, the non-Indigenous world, which I'm in. So I wanted to bring that. I want to just sort of draw something else out too. Um, obviously, as you say, it's really very strongly about your sense of who you are and your community. But you also write from a perspective of somebody who has been involved with really important policy areas as part of your career. And I'm thinking of the work you've done around economic development, for example. From that perspective, to just draw out some of your arguments a little bit more from the policy work that you've done and those really important areas that you've been involved with in a very practical way. What are some of the reasons why you believe the voice to parliament is something that's going to translate? Well, building from both the community level and and into my work, we see change all the time and change is in the bureaucracy. People come and people go. And that means new ideas, chucking out old stuff. When there's a change of government, there is a change in policy and there are change in people, um, including the politicians and the bureaucracy. So, and for Aboriginal people, we have always been here. And, you know, even before I embarked on my career, at home, it was always around when a you know, new person came to be a manager from wherever they were, from Perth or Sydney. The question was always, how long are you going to be here? How long are you sticking around for? Because what we're looking for is how much investment do we need to make a new government person, new manager? And I mean, how long, if we make this investment in you and tell you all our challenges and tell you our solutions, Will you be sticking around to implement them? And that's really the heart of what I've seen in my career because you can go into a job as a manager or, you know, a director or set up a policy, but when the government changes or when you leave your job to go to a new job or a new town and your life takes you in different directions, there is still that issue on the ground that has to be dealt with. And the change of bureaucracy means the, the community has to repeat itself yet again. And also in the community has to invest in the education of these policy people and these politicians. And so we do it again, but then comes another election cycle and then comes another manager and you have to do it again. So it's certainly one step forward, almost two steps back, not the other way around. And that's why I think the voice is something that is going to be permanent, we hopefully will have to repeat ourselves less and we can actually get real momentum. And that's why I thought the voice in its permanency was is going to be a good thing. It strikes me that your book has two audiences in a way. It sort of is a reflection that I think speaks to many other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But obviously there's a large audience 
that you're speaking to to convince who's not Indigenous. And I was just wondering, what are you hoping both of those quite different audiences will take from the book? And did you did you think about one more than the other or are they both equally important to you? They are both equally important. And I think the language that I use, I'm trying to be accessible really to everyone. It's an, Hopefully it's an easy read. You do hear my voice. It's not bureaucracy. I try to make not uh, academic speak not big words. And that's not to simplify it at all. It's just to cut through the noise. And I did want it so that my community, my family could read it and and get it as well. It's the language I speak to my family and my community, but it also has to be the language and the accessibility to 97% of Australian people who are going to vote. You know, we're only 3% of the population and the power comes from the 97% or rather the the bulk of the voting power comes from the 97%. But it does have to bridge all of these worlds. It's also going to speak, well, non-Indigenous Australians include other migrant communities or to people who, who are first, second generation Australians. It has to speak to everyone. So I wanted it to speak to everybody. I wanted it to be a humanising conversation because we are all the same at the end of the day and I wanted it to be a conversation. I mean, I don't give all of the answers. I give some history. but Hopefully that brings people to a level of understanding and a relation to say, well, I know what they mean by that and I know, well, that doesn't make sense. That's not right and that's not just. It needs to be brought down to a very person-to-person human conversation. That's what I wanted to write. And I so I wrote it. Yes, I wrote it for the majority of Australians, but I, I absolutely wanted to make sure I got it right for First Nations people. Yours is such a heartfelt passionate, grounded account of why you so strongly believe in the voice to parliament. And I was just wondering, it struck me how you're finding the arguments being put forward against the voice. Does it surprise you the sorts of arguments that are made against it, given that you feel so strongly about it yourself? Well, their opinions, I'm not sure if they're arguments because I don't see alternatives from their side. I hear nays and, you know, all these reasons why not. But again, apart from, you know, there are people like Lydia Thought who actually do agree with some of the things that she says, but the naysayers in general, um, I find that they're not telling the full story. They're not telling, taking into account the whole gamut of issues, including cultural, psychological trauma issues, um, you know, that we have to face. Um, I think there's a huge missing element of cultural capacity and cultural authority that's lacking in those arguments and cultural language revitalization is missing in their arguments. But it's all about, it's all glass half full and there's no alternatives. And I don't think that they've been challenged enough to say, what do you mean by that? For us as Yes campaigners, We have to justify everything. We have to make sure all our I's are dotted and all our T's are crossed. And we answer the question, I don't find that the media is holding to account the no campaign in its truths or lack thereof or smoke screens. I just find the media needs to do a lot more work in holding the no campaign to account. You're such an optimistic person. It comes through in the way that you speak and it obviously comes through in such a personal essay that your book encompasses. What are your thoughts? Because obviously the polling isn't as strong as people have wanted. Do you think about what the implications are if the referendum fails? 
Oh, I do. I mean, the first thing I would say is the polling will go up and down. And I'm, you know, optimistic, as you say, that the general public will give sharp focus, you know, when the date is announced and when we're, you know, six weeks, five weeks, four weeks from the actual referendum, their focus will be a lot sharper and they'll be asking more questions. And I do think that the No campaign has had a free run for a long time. I'm almost hoping that they'll run out of arguments or at least the Yes campaign will will come into sharp focus. I don't want to contemplate a no. I mean, I think it's just it'll be very sad for everybody, to be honest. I don't know why you would celebrate if there was a no for a start. So I don't want to contemplate a no, and that's why you, you, we've all got to step up to the plate. I think Australians generally are wanting to support. They just need some more information and they want to hear from some people. And I think the no campaign is just bombarding us, as I say, with a book with all this negativity. And I think the negativity might have even produced disengagement as a result. So hopefully some positive approaches will, will start to re-engage the general public more. But a no win, I don't see the benefit. I don't see how it's going to help our national evolution as a country. I don't see how it's going to help our national emotional well-being, to be honest. The book itself has a lot of you in it. You give a lot of yourself to your readers. And it struck me that that's a, you know, it's a very brave thing to do in any circumstance, but particularly in this circumstance where people are experiencing a lot of backlash when they speak out for the voices, a lot of discussion about the toxic environment in, in social media spaces around this issue. So I was just wondering... As somebody who's coming across as so optimistic, but very generous in what you've shared mm. of yourself in the book, how do you stay strong in this space that isn't always kind? Well, I suppose I make, well, I make cakes, for example. <laughs> and I don't, I mean, that might be flippant, but when I wrote the book and, and it was done like the very final day and it was a media release, I just went into hermit stage and I just thought the only thing that's going to like make me happy is to bake. So I did bake a cake, but I do control my social media. I do try to stay positive. I'm trying not to, and I hope I haven't had a crack at people in terms of the no. I mean, we've talked about the no campaign, but you know, I do respect that people have different points of view, but I certainly try not to personalize it. And I think that's the only way that I can get through it. And I also am surrounded by friends and family. And I think without them, I would be, you know, I I might come undone. But that's why it was important for me to present my perspective. My mum is in the book. I talk about my family, my community. I wanted to make sure that they were happy. I ground myself in my family and my community. I'm gonna, I mean, I'm gonna go home in a couple of weeks because I just need to see be and see home and talk to my family and, and, and all of that. So I ground myself in my community, my family. I try not to have a go at individuals and abuse people. There's some stuff I just don't look at at social media. So you can only do what you can do. Charles, thank you so much for this important contribution to the Voice to Parliament debate. And thank you so much for spending some time with us on Speaking Out, talking about your inspirations and your thoughts. And I do hope that at some stage I get to taste some of that baking. (laughs) You can guarantee it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Charles. Thanks. 
That's Managing Director of Nick Barr Consulting, Charles Prowse. His new book, Charles Prowse on the Voice to Parliament, is available now through Hushet Australia. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Polling suggests a growing number of people remain undecided on the prospect of an Indigenous voice to Parliament and as a result, many are turning to their First Nations peers for answers. But how can we ease the cultural load on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people during this important national discussion? You'll find out more shortly, but first some music from Kiwot Cannell. I fell in 
that's disconnected. That was Kiwat Cannell with Disconnected, a new song released as part of the Archie Roach Foundation's mentoring program, Singing Our Futures. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. First Nations people in the workforce are struggling under the weight of racism, increased cultural load and challenges to their identity. That's according to the Diversity Council of Australia's Inclusion at Work Index, which looks to provide a snapshot of the state of inclusion and diversity within our workforce. Unfortunately for First Nations people, inclusion and cultural safety in the workplace is something that we are dealing with on a daily basis. But with conversations around an Indigenous voice to Parliament and the upcoming referendum intensifying, many First Nations people are feeling unsafe with challenges to identity, stereotypes and assumptions common causes of concern. These issues were a central focus of a recent online forum hosted by the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm Philippa McDermott, Mananjali and Waka Waka Woman. My day job is the Director of First Nations Talent at Deloitte. I'm also honoured to be the Chair of Bangara I'm on the Lloyd McDermott Rugby Development Team, New South Wales Treasury Advisory Committee and a number of other things. But today we're here to talk about something that is dear to my heart and something that I do every day, which is Indigenous employment and all of the aspects that that entails. The more people that are employed in Indigenous space, which is what we've been driving for for the last 20 you know, or 30 years, is fantastic. Reconciliation Action Plans have really helped that as well, and there have been a number of initiatives to get Aboriginal people employed. I think after 30 years, in the beginning, obviously, we were flying, building the plane and flying it at the same time, and I think a lot of organisations are doing that. So they haven't set up systems properly and been through all of the detail that they need and to actually fully support our Indigenous employees. My experience of cultural load, the younger I was, the harder it was, but also when I was at the beginning of my career. But I was very lucky to work in Aboriginal affairs and at ATSIC, so I learnt the hard way in a lot of ways, but it was kind of, you know, thrown in the deep end. But I had a lot of support around me from working in an Aboriginal organisation. So you learn how to navigate that, but you also share that load. The older I've gotten and the more I've moved through my career, I've moved away from those areas and uh, although working in Indigenous employment and media. And the thing that I have found is that if there's not a person or a, a resource set up to deal with answering all the stupid questions, giving people resources or what have you, then the, the load gets sent out to everyone. People just ring in randomly any Aboriginal person they know in the organisation or you might be the only Aboriginal person in the organisation and it falls on you. So I've had that experience. What I have done to try and mitigate that as I've gone through my career is trying to set up systems within my organisation to help minimise that, like a toolkit, resources on our intranet, etc. And as much as you can do that, and it has helped, half the people don't know that they're there, but it's easy then to send an email just to direct them there. But it doesn't answer everybody's questions either. So the cultural load has grown, but now it's actually part of my job. So I am part of the resource in my organisation to answer those questions. And I take that very seriously 
but that's not the case for everybody. And I understand that and it affects employment. And this is a real workplace issue, okay? And this is where HR departments really need to understand this. You literally need to go through policies and procedures and what have you to actually get the settings right in the organisation because you have to share that load. It can't just be pinned on Aboriginal people. But then as a leader, I actually take it on as my responsibility to be part of that and take that load off the younger staff, but that's not always the case and I just pass it over to other people because I'm just conscious of, of me taking up too much time. We love hearing from you, Philippa. We can never hear enough from you. Philippa is one of the most experienced Indigenous person managing Indigenous people in the country and we're very lucky to have her here today. I'd like to ask Lara Watson, if you're comfortable, Lara, can you share your experiences of cultural load and more generally as First Nations leaders in the workplace? Thanks. I look at this from two different areas. So I'm employed as an Indigenous officer at the ACTU So there's cultural load that comes with my position. But I can also see where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the only people employed Um, and they're employed to do a job but are expected to do everything black as well. So kind of looking at my role within the ACTU, 100% supported, it's resourced, and this is what enables us to be able to go out and do what we know best because we do know that we have a higher success rate if we have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people organising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. One of the real downfalls when you're an Indigenous officer within an organisation is isolation. So if you're the only black fella there in the workplace, it really does become difficult. And I guess in that situation, I would recommend that you don't employ one Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, but you employ two. So there is that cultural support there in the workplace. I've been in other roles that haven't been resourced. And when you're not able to deliver on outcomes, we're then questioned about the work that we do. And we know that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have to be exceptional at their job. We can't just be mediocre, or otherwise, we then get targeted being slack or doing something else. So when I look more broadly with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander members, union members and what their issues are in and around cultural load, particularly in and around Reconciliation Week and NAIDOC, their workloads get excessive and they're not paid anymore for doing that work. I don't think Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have anything to reconcile And really, it should be the whole organisation that if they want to get involved in Reconciliation Week or NAIDOC, then they need to do that. They can't just put that load on the one or two Aboriginal people that they have in their workplace. And what we've seen also is uh, RAPs. So RAPs have a very specific purpose within the workplace and they are not about creating work for the one Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person you have there. We know our culture, we know our heritage, we know our protocols, we know our sensitivities. So RAP is meant to be an organisational thing looking at how they can better improve a workplace 
and be attractive for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander workers and to create that safe space. And while I'm supported 100% in my role, it's very difficult. Like I often felt isolated. I've got another black fella on doing the referendum stuff, which is great, Rachel Boss, and we just run amok. Like, and we're productive together because we know we can support each other and we can have conversations around cultural sensitivities that perhaps other people within the organisation aren't aware of. And I might leave it there. Fantastic. Thank you, Laura. Really, really appreciate. One more question for you and Philippa, and then we'll move on to the questions where we'll be hearing from Sarah Derry as well. What has the impact this year been on cultural load? What's different this year? What a year, hey? I'm part of the team that is rolling out the Unions for Yes campaign. At the beginning, I was pleasantly surprised that there wasn't too much racism or targeting of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And it just seems like overnight, every single racist in this country are coming out and targeting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, regardless of what side of the fence that they sit on, but also our allies as well. I've been called everything under the sun. I'm a, a lizard person that's come to take over the world and this is all a conspiracy and being told that we should all be rounded up and taken out to sea and drowned. So it's been pretty intense. ACT have been amazing in they filter my emails now, so any of that kind of racist stuff doesn't actually come to me. I don't filter through that. But I'm still out in public and we're still delivering training and they think it's a big joke. And ACT have organised a psychologist as well because I made the decision going into this campaign, like I didn't always support it, but when I come to the realisation that this can be a game changer, I made the choice to be vulnerable so that people could really understand the importance and the connection that we have and the necessity that we need Australians to vote yes but that also opens up the doors for any kind of hate. So it does get a little bit too much at times, but I'm in a great space and being supported and that's been limited. So, yes, the cultural load has been exhausting this year, but I made the decision to be really open and vulnerable and I made that decision because my workplace supports the work that I'm doing and makes sure everything is in place that I'm safe and I have everything at hand to do the work that I want to do. Philippa, what has the impact this year been on cultural load for you? We all knew it was going to be a big year. I think the challenge for me has been that it's actually taken me off my day-to-day business, you know, in my workplace, but also at Bangara, we've set up training which is fine because this is part of the job, right, for me. But in my workplace at Deloitte, it's a very conservative organisation, as you can imagine. We don't have a lot of Indigenous staff, but this is about actually educating our 15,000 non-Indigenous staff and clients, I suppose, to some degree, you know, so that our staff, when they're talking to clients, actually have some information if they get asked by clients because our organisation can support the Uluru Statement and then they support a yes and et cetera, et cetera. So while we've been doing that training, uh, Joe Hedger and I, for our organisation, there is also the cultural load 
there's cultural load for, for non-Indigenous people too, believe it or not, in the sense that if you are a yes supporter, then you're getting questioned and even our organisation is getting questioned as to why by their clients. It's about actually for me the, the load has increased because I am now taking it to the next level with trying to educate around this issue. And this is not an easy issue to unpack for people, the reasons why we have come to this conclusion. So it's about how do you inform your own people first and then what mechanisms can you set up in your organisation? So we've set up through EAP that there's Indigenous counsellors if they have challenging issues and they're going to be setting up a hotline And I know a lot of people don't trust EAP either, but, you know, it is one mechanism that we can use. Then we have the information resources on our intranet and what have you. And so we've we've set up these streams to try and help support the training that we've been doing. But at the end of the day, it's taken us off our day jobs, really, but this is part of the day job. And it has been an extra load, but it's going to be worth it, regardless of whether we win, lose, draw, what have you, this has moved the conversation to the next level, which does mean more work. Always more work for us. I I think that's absolutely right, Philippa, and I I think so many of us, once we'd made up our mind a couple of years ago or a year ago, what we thought were understanding that all of those negotiations had occurred with a mind to it being bipartisan and being a unifying moment nationally and I think um, so many of us are just so disappointed that we're now having to operate in this environment of hatred which is always really unnerving. Thank you Philippa. Okay I'm going to go to Sarah in the first instance because Sarah hasn't spoken yet and if you could introduce yourself Sarah But the question is, what actions do you think are necessary to support First Nations employees this year? So I'd like you to talk in the general sense first. Hey, Noreen, and thank you, everyone. It's um, a great privilege to have an opportunity to be here with you all today. And I'm um, coming to you from Gadigal land. And I was born on Gadigal land, but uh, grew up in far north Queensland in uh, Woolgarooga and Bindor country. I think even in this moment that we're having in the conversation today, I think is the first thing that we all need to be doing, for those of us who are not Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, is listening and listen to the real experiences that you're having and individuals are having. And I just want to thank Lara, Philippa, yourself and and everyone for sharing that. So I think in the general sense, listen deeply in the first instance. The cultural load that you've heard here, it is real. Our teams do talk about that as well. And so a real practical thing that we can do uh, from a general perspective is listening, build your own knowledge and capability as an individual. If you are a leader in an organisation, you have a responsibility to also enable your team, your leaders, your, you know, every single person that you come into contact with to build their capability as well. And we have to shoulder the burden of that information and stepping into those spaces. So at a core, we have you know, nearly 3% of our team members identify as First Nations. And, you know, we have two very senior leaders in our Indigenous careers team. But again, unfortunately, the, the burden, it is exactly what you hear here, is that people will go to them first. What do I do? Whereas actually, 
I would say in the most general sense is it is our responsibility as an individual to educate yourself, to step into that space and take accountability for that, I think is the most important thing that we can do. One of the things that I've really noticed by our brother Stan Grant being public, by everyone being exposed to the the racism on social media in such a big way is that People of decency and goodwill, um, non-Aboriginal people, are at last starting to see this thing that we have tried to tell you about, um, the racism that is experienced, that we've tried to tell you about for so long, you're now starting to understand what is undergone and that is actually really, really positive. Um, I do try to be cheery as often as I can, so I'm trying to see the cheery side. Okay, so, Philippa. What actions do you think are necessary to support First Nations employees this year? What actions do you think are necessary to support? Oh, sorry, um, Philippa, what work is Deloitte doing to support your First Nations staff this year? Um, What work is Deloitte um, doing to support your First Nations staff this year? Thanks, Noreen. Thanks, Lara. Look, I'm just going to pick up on something Lara said around calling out racism. And as much as, you know, that is important to do, it's not always safe to do that. So I just preface that with only if you feel like it's safe to do that, and that will depend on your workplace. The challenge that I think workplaces have is that their policies and processes aren't set up for that. Even though we have WHS bullying and harassment and what have you, that doesn't actually mention the word racism, even though it mentions, you know, discrimination on race. There are nuances that HR people like to manoeuvre around. So there's a bigger challenge there, I think, for organisations because they don't know how to deal with it, right? So unless they have diverse and Indigenous people in that area, sometimes they're not dealing with it properly. That's another conversation that needs to be had and we're going to have that at another time about how we can support organisations, you know, to actually, you know, literally drill down into their policies and make sure that those things are being covered. Also through grievance processes, they aren't robust enough quite often to be able to to cope with that. So you need to just be aware of that and find an ally in your organisation to help support you and or outside your organisation, even the union or what have you, if you're having those challenges. So I just want to put that out there because those kind of things are real and when you don't get a result or when you don't see any action, I mean, that's part of the cultural load and I don't need to tell you, you know, where where that leads as well. So what's Deloitte doing? So we've got our just general cultural awareness training. And so when you look at the, you know, Gary Arla report and other reports about what happens in workplaces generally, most organisations should by now, and if they don't, have some kind of cultural awareness training, even if it's a 101. And if you don't, go to Reconciliation Australia's website and they have got at least free resources there that you your organisation can, can link and put back to their organisation and people can do their own training. But training is not everything, right? And then there's a turnover of staff and, you know, there's challenges with training. But training, generally training, not about the voice, but just about cultural awareness does help, okay? If you give people tools, they'll quite often go off on their own, hopefully, and start their own own journey. So you've got to at least at a basic minimum have some kind of cultural awareness training and there are a lot of free resources out there. And if you don't and if your organisation can afford it, then, you know, 
get someone in to do face-to-face and there are a lot of, you know, Indigenous people that are doing that now. And if you don't know, hit me up on LinkedIn and I'll give you some names of, you know, and resources. So we're doing training. Then we're, you know, we're looking at allies in our organisation because, as we said before, we can't do this on our own, right? So after our training that we're doing on The Voice, we're asking people if they want to be involved or they want to help, you know, support us and community to get information out to communities and to their own families. And it's not about voting yes and it's not about voting no, it's just actually getting information out because that seems to be the biggest challenge for us at the moment. What else is our organisation doing? We're having beyond me and Joe doing the training, we're having people coming in and there are plenty of people, uh, if you look on the yes and the no's uh, websites, there are people that will come to your organisation and, and if you host a panel session, will come and talk about the issues and talk about their perspectives. So, you know, I mean, we're all, everybody's doing webinars and, you know, panels and what have you on a number of things. So this is another way to inform your people. Sarah, what are you doing at Accor this year, Accor Hotels? Thanks, Doreen. Um, yeah, I think in a very specific sense, I think what's really important here is the practical tips that you're hearing for those, even for me, it sort of it gets you thinking about what more can I do. So on a practical level, number one thing is it's like anything in an organisation has to be led from the top. So I am making sure that I'm in as many conversations, panels, participating, hosting, doing those things as possible. And that's really important, number one. So for leaders listening in, I think being visible and making sure that you're participating fully and building your own capability sends a really important message, number one. Second to that, exactly um, building the capability of your, our team. So we also have a provider of face-to-face training in cultural capability. So we work with uh, Blackcard, uh, Mandanara Bales and her team. They run training for all our team members uh, to access that. And then we have sessions where you can go deeper you know, into different topics or if you really want to learn um, as a non-Indigenous person about how to deliver a meaningful acknowledgement to country and things like that. So on a base level, absolutely providing access to training is critically important. So there's some of the things we're doing. The other thing is that given the stance we've taken is that we want people to learn, build their own capability, the teams have put together a terrific online resource, which exactly all the things that Philip was talking to, you know, provides. There's podcasts, there's books that you can go to, there's articles you can read. And again, it's it's providing information to people so they can make up their own mind. And then we've also been hosting um, a series of webinars on these topics. Actually, Josh, uh, in your team, participated in one recently with us. And again, that's about providing information and being visible in this space. The wellness element is critically important as well. So whether it's access to EAP, exactly as you said, Noreen, making sure that there are Indigenous counsellors available and so on. But one thing also um, that I've been talking to our team about, talking to one of our Indigenous leaders yesterday about is just a simple thing you can do when we talk about cultural load, just check in with your team, right? So for my, my job is to say, how are you doing? Or if I see that a team member is taking too much responsibility, what I think might be too much responsibility for that is to actually say to them, I can take some of that load or are you okay? I think is a really simple, practical thing is to not ignore that and also just to ask those questions as well. So it's building capability and knowledge. Finally, 
on a practical level. We're at a core given, you know, we run accommodation and event spaces and that. We're providing practical support to the campaign around accommodation and catering and events. And again, that's important because it's a real tangible thing that we can do. I think saying you're going to do something versus doing something, it's the classic actions speak louder than words. So they're the things that we're doing. And I believe that will mean we have a meaningful uh, conversations in our organisation. And then I believe that if we're having that in the workplace, I know people are going to go and have those meaningful conversations at home and in their communities. And that's how you create change. And again, last week, we got 450 of our leaders together at a leaders conference here in Sydney, our most senior leaders. And thank you, Noreen, for participating. But we had a panel First Nations Leadership with Dean from Yes23, yourself, obviously, Mandanara from Black Card, and really genuine, fabulous conversation and getting people to understand more than they did when they walk into those conversations and go away, um, you know, willing to do more and to be more thoughtful and take that insight into what they do daily. So that's what we're doing in a core. And to the point you said earlier, it's probably not enough. And so we we have to keep doing more. Um, and so I also, you know, it's great for me to hear this conversation because it gives me insight to take away as well. Philippa, did you want to say one last thing, Sis? Yeah, one thing. Uh, somebody's asking about why in organisations they want to hear more from their First Nations employees on this. Sometimes it might not be safe. They might not feel safe to talk about this or they might not have even made up their own mind. So we can't expect that all the Indigenous staff, you know, in an organisation are going to be able to to talk to this. And if not, you need to be able to find other resources that are going to talk to this. Um, They might be the only Aboriginal people that you know potentially and you want to hear from them about their opinions. But, you know, as we've been saying, it might not be necessarily safe or they might not feel comfortable to do that. So you need to seek out other people like this, you know, on this webinar and what have you to be able to to talk to that if you want. And the last thing I want to say is if your employer is doing things and you're not getting results, leave. Don't stay in a job where you are not uh, supported, appreciated, or, you know, there is racist behaviour or what have you, because A lot of organisations don't have the mechanisms to be able to cope with that. And if your organisation doesn't, I previously would have said, you know, come on, let's just see how we can get through it. But I've just come to the conclusion that there is no point in doing that. And the thing is, we are in demand. You need to look for a workplace that you can see is actively supporting Indigenous things and people and you you ask them the questions when you go to an interview or you look on the website or whatever and say what are you doing what support mechanisms and networks and blah blah do you have in place you know because Aboriginal employment is in demand and employers are looking for great people so don't think you have to stay in a job where or in a place that is not going to support you. That's Philippa McDermott, Director of First Nations Talent at Deloitte. You also heard from Associate Dean Indigenous Leadership and Engagement at the University of Technology Sydney, Noreen Young, Indigenous Officer at the Australian Council of Trade Unions, Lara Watson, Farmer, Academic and Environmental Advocate, Josh Gilbert, and Chief Executive Officer of Accor Pacific, Sarah Derry. They were speaking during an online webinar hosted by the University of Technology Sydney.
that's the show for this week. Join us again next week when I'm joined by Chairman of the Aboriginal Land Council of Tasmania, Michael Mansell. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Manel Creed. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. Thank you.